hi everyone. I'm one of your hosts, Connor Adams, and welcome to another episode in our series of professor interviews. Today we have with us Professor John Gennari, and can't wait to ask him a couple of questions about what he does. Great to be here. Yeah, we have our uh, co-host Henry here today as oh. well. Yeah. Hi. I forgot I needed to introduce myself. Hi, everyone. I'm Henry. Okay, cool. Well, uh, to start off, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do at UBM? So, John Gennari, I am a professor of English, currently chair of the English department. I've taught here since 2001 with a joint appointment in English and what we're now calling critical race and ethnic studies. Uh, used to be called the LANA U.S. Ethnic Studies. I teach a lot of courses that get designated as D1, you know, diversity courses because of a lot of my my research falls into the area of African-American studies. I'm a jazz historian, historian of American music and its relationship to the other arts, in particular criticism and writing, the writing about music. And I also work on interracial, interethnic interactions and what I call edges and overlaps between racial and ethnic groups, in particular in the arts, music and, you know, film, television, media and such. And I've got a couple books that, that you, you know, bear out those those interests. And I bring a lot of that into my teaching. I teach English 57, which is the English department's very popular D1 offering in race and ethnicity and literary and cultural study. I teach a course on Italian-American literature and culture. My, my last book was called Flavor and Soul, Italian America at its African-American Edge. And I've been working in the field of Italian-American studies for a while now, mostly concerned with, uh, again, with the relationship between Italian-Americans and other people from other ethnicities and races. I teach a course called Jazz and the Cultural Imagination. It looks at jazz as jazz is imagined by other kinds of artists, it, musicians as well, and, and, and how musicians self-examine and make sense of what they do as musicians and as cultural workers, but also um, filmmakers, photographers, writers of various kinds that have been inspired by jazz or seek to, um, you know, to represent the music in its, in its history. I, in that, in that Flavor and Soul book, part of the title, <laughs> the flavor part of this title comes from an interest in food. I have a chapter in that book that's explicitly an argument about the connections between food and music in Italian culture and in black culture. And in, you know, ethnic culture more more generally. I mean, I think about the ways that ethnic groups, uh, immigrant groups and ethnic groups in this country, they, if you think about the ways in which other Americans connect with them, if they do, very largely it has to do with their food and with their with their music. And, and so that's part of the argument. But also there's a more kind of theoretical part of the argument about the way that both music and food are things that enter our bodies and become part of our own identity in literally, you know, kind of in, in, in physical ways. And in spite of whatever people might be saying and doing, people from different ethnic groups, what they may be saying and, and doing and feeling and thinking about each other 
they're literally kind of consuming each other <laughs> when it comes to, 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 to music and food. And I think that's a that's an interesting thing to, you know, to look at. So that's that's where I am, you know, as a uh, as a professional. My partner is also a professor in the department, Emily Bernard, and we have two 15 year old daughters who we adopted in Ethiopia when they were one year old. And, you know, 15-year-old girls who are right on that very porous line between vulnerability and viciousness, particularly toward each other, that's a big part of my life right now. I grew up in a small town in western, the western part of Massachusetts called Lenox um, in, the, in the Berkshires and grew up in an Italian-American working-class family. My father was a, he worked as a welder at a General Electric facility in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, but he grew up on a farm in the north of Italy, and he never lost, you know, his connection to, to, the, to the soil. Uh, he was a, a master gardener, among, among other things. And my mother grew up in an Italian-American family in New Jersey, just over the, uh, the river from uh, New York City. And she worked as a seamstress, making custom-made drapery and fixing our clothes and, and such. And I loved sports. I grew up as a big Boston Red Sox fan and played a lot of baseball and ice hockey and soccer and other things. And all that continues to be a part of my life, at least as a spectator. I've had I've had two hip replacement surgeries, I think, from playing playing hockey a little bit too aggressively many years ago. So I'm not as active on that front as I as I'd like to be. Well, can you tell us some of the reasons why you teach what you teach? Like, what about it interests you so much that this is like your specialty? You know, I, I think I've been really fortunate in being able to to gravitate in my research and teaching to the things that I love the most and that are, you know, really just at the center of my life. Music preeminently, the food stuff that I do. But I'm also, you know, really interested in politics, both electoral politics and other kinds of, you know, the politics of culture and such, and the way power and privilege and social dynamics take shape within various institutions and social worlds, art worlds, etc. And so I'm one of these people, it's like there's not a real line between my work and, and my life or my, you know, my, my leisure you know the stuff that i'm i'm doing for pleasure turns out to be really you know research in a way <laughs> but when i'm really doing research i just love you know just trying to figure out how how things came to be artistically how a particular artwork be it a piece of music a poem or a you know a story or a or a film or just a scene in a film i'm really interested in the mechanics of you know how these things get 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 put together and and then how they how they generate meaning social meaning cultural meaning and that's what's really great about teaching because you know some of the material I teach I've taught many many times over many years and every time every semester I teach you know stuff that I thought I really understood I learn new things because my students are you know usually encountering it for the for the first time and they're bringing fresh eyes to it and they're bringing their own life experience to it. And these things take on a new meaning because new knowledge is produced in the classroom and in classroom discussion in particular. And, and so that's, you know, that's, that's just super fulfilling. 
So I'm I'm just very fortunate to live a life in which I don't feel at all alienated from, you know, the kind of work that I do. There's there's stuff that I have to do as an administrator. <laughs> that's that's a that's a bit alienating. But, you know, I think living being able to to live a life of reading and writing and consuming music and the key thing is being around young people you know whose whose discovery of these things you know can be a part of and i and i discover things through through my students as well you know not just rethinking something reinterpreting something that i know about but just being introduced to new stuff i mean sometimes i feel like i w- there there should be like a more t- particularly with music there needs to be a moratorium on new music so people like me can catch up <laughs> because I, I know that there's really great stuff being produced and and I just don't have time to, you know, to catch up with it. And and so the tendency is to sort of lean back on the stuff that you know. And it's good to re- revisit stuff that you know. I think if you're a good scholar, you, you really need to, you know, to see how things are being reimagined in real time and by, you know, a different generation and different kinds of people bringing different subjectivities and missions to the, you know, to the work of creating culture. Absolutely. I was wondering if maybe you could touch on sort of, you know, you have your own areas, areas of expertise and sort of interest and how that sort of gets introduced into the classroom and sort of like your role as an instructor, you know, maybe how that sort of comes about in the classes themselves and also what it's like sort of day to day to be an English professor at UVM. Okay, let me take the second question first, you know, the the macro question. I mean, what it's like to be a an English professor or any kind of professor at UVM, but maybe particularly an English professor. I mean, we are we the faculty, we just consider ourselves blessed <laughs> with the honor and the and the pleasure of being able to step into a classroom and and do the kind of work collaboratively with our students that I was I was describing for most of us have really active research and writing agendas, you know, so there's a lot of stuff we have to do in solitude, going to read, you know, historical archives or, you know, reading new texts and keeping up on the, um, you know, the latest scholarship in the field. I mean, that's a that's a big part of your job, you know, just being a I mean, you're considered you get a Ph.D. and or, a you know, Masters of Fine Arts if you're a creative writer. And, you know, you've been validated as a kind of expert in your field of specialization. And a lot of what you do turns out to be evaluating other people's work. You do that, you know, as a teacher when you're grading your students. But the, the part of the job I didn't know about, I mean, I, if I thought about it and pieced it together before I got into the field, I, I guess I would have figured it out. But, you know, the concept of peer review, you know, you write a piece, you send it to a journal or, or a publisher if it's a book, and other people who do work in this area review the book and decide, you know, if it gets published or not or if it needs revisions and such. And, I mean, it's, it, it can be a really anxiety-provoking you know, process. But, you know, if you make it this far, if you make it into um, a position at a place like UVM, you've you've succeeded enough at that process, you know, to get to get credentialed. And even the process of going through that, I think, is really engaging and, and rewarding. I mean, it's just even even the, you know, the review of something that you wrote that you don't necessarily agree with or you don't think they got your point. I mean, 
you know, the process of being of being read really closely and in the process of engagement with others in your field. I mean, that if you if you're living the life of a writer or an intellectual, I mean, that that is the lifeblood of the of the process, because that's where the knowledge really gets gets produced. That's where your thinking and your formulation of your ideas really gets put to the test. And and the process makes you better, you know, because you things get pointed out to you that it's not even a question of like, this is right or this is wrong. It's like, this is, it's usually something like, you know, this is really interesting what you're doing here, but here's where you can go further with it. Or you should go further with this, you know, because you write something and you don't really have a sense necessarily of what it is, you know, because you've been inside it so long and you get perspective from other readers and get a sense of if it's in balance or out of balance and, you know, what it needs to, you know, to really make it. If you think of it like a like a painting or a sculpture, you know, you're fine tuning it to get it to be what it really can be. So the life of a professor is a lot of that. And then connected with that and, or sort of adjacent to that is the business of putting your classes together and teaching them. And putting your classes together is, I think it's a part of the job that doesn't get enough attention, like the kind of work that goes into creating a syllabus and a syllabus in the sense, not just of, you know, what you're going to read or listen to or look at, but how you're going to, how you're going to scaffold the semester, how you're going to order things, how you're going to, you know, think about how much time needs to be spent on this and how much time needs to be spent on that, how much flexibility you want to build into the syllabus so that based on what happens in class discussion, you can go in a variety of different directions, you know, given what you're feeling and hearing from the from the student. Coming up with writing assignments. Um, we spend a lot of time, I mean, sometimes you're you're dashing something off, like sometimes, you know, you guys dashed off a paper the night before, the morning of, whatever. We all have that experience. And sometimes the assignments are treated that way because you're so busy with, with other stuff. But more often than not, even, you know, even relatively kind of short assignments, a lot of thought goes into them. You know, a lot of thought goes into like how, I mean, what makes sense as a question that's going to bring out from the students, it's going to challenge them to think harder and more deeply and sharply about, you know, what they've been, what they've been reading and, and, and thinking about. The, the great part of it is it is a collaborative, multi-directional process. I mean, this, you know, students aren't writing the exam questions or the or the paper prompts, but in a way they don't necessarily appreciate. In in a way they are, or they're contributing to the writing of them for the next semester, because of you know the feedback that a that a teacher gets based on the work that's produced, or you know what somebody says in a student evaluation about you know this was a great assignment or this is this assignment sucked or, or you know whatever. All of that is really helpful. I mean, you don't want to hear that your assignment sucked or this reading was a waste of time, but it's you need to know that. And if it's one student saying it, it's one thing. But if a lot of students are saying it, well, you need you need to recognize that there's something up there. That's the life of a professor. And but then you know a lot of it has to do with building a community, building a community of your peers on the faculty, but also trying to help the students build their community or to, you know, give them the resources and the inspiration to, you know, to think of this not just as a bunch of classes that you're going to go to, but, you know, to really 
become an English major or an English minor and to have that become part of your identity and your way of being in the world and thinking about the world. And we, we, as a faculty, we talk a lot about that, you know, in department meetings. I mean, we're dealing with all sort of administrative stuff and trying to schedule the courses and, you know, kind of bureaucratic matters that, you know, just need to be taken care of. But a lot of it is, I mean, how do we really create a special community and a, a special kind of experience? And those are really interesting conversations, you know, because you're getting at the life of the mind, but you're also getting at what's happening, you know, what's happening socially, what's happening with this generation of students when it comes to when it comes to politics, when it comes to race and gender and, you know, the hot take top line kind of stuff that's out there in the in the culture. You know, I mean, we just we just have to be on top of that. We have to fit ourselves into that. You know, we have to think of ourselves simultaneously as authority figures who are, you know, kind of setting the terms and defining certain kinds of criteria and certain kinds of boundaries. But it's it's very important that we that we absorb and reflect on and sh and shape, you know, the ideas and, you know, kind of emotional lives of our students, you know, in the way that a, a good family operates or, you know, any kind of social organization. Yeah. So what do you hope uh, students get out of your classes? What do you hope they walk away with at the end of the day? What a great question. I mean, I, mostly I hope they've, they've been challenged to think harder about, I mean, sometimes, you know, they're just encountering something absolutely for the first time. And I'm hoping that just kind of blows their mind, you know, in a good way and just, you know, makes their life richer. But a lot of it is, you know, it's stuff that they may be somewhat familiar with, whether they've read this book or that book or not. You know, the, the concepts, the themes, the ideas are things that they're familiar with. But they've been challenged to to rethink or to, you know, kind of reflect and think more deeply and not necessarily to change their minds, but but to know more about why it is that they think and feel the way that they do. So what you're doing is you're participating in the students. You're helping the students essentially teach themselves. You're teaching them to become teachers of them, of, of their own, you know, the authors of their own experience, the, you know, the critics of their own of their own work, critic in the, you know, in the best sense, interpreters of their own experience, you're giving them the tools to, to make sense of the world, really. And we, you know, we're endlessly in, in a field like English and the humanities more generally. I mean, we're endlessly these days being asked to sort of explain what the practical value is of what we're doing and how do you get a job you know, coming out of one of these fields, et cetera, et cetera. And that, I mean, that, those, those are really valid, you know, concerns. I mean, particularly given the, you know, the cost of, of doing business here and, you know, the amount of money that families are putting into the education of their, their children, students putting into their own education. And to me, it's like, we're never not thinking about that. It's like, you're never not finally thinking about how, how do you make a living? But make a living is not just about making money, nothing wrong with making money, but making a life. And that involves all kinds of, you know, 
things, not just economic, but moral, spiritual, physical even. And so, like, you know, when you're reading a good book, even if it's a book of fiction that doesn't, you know, you don't quote unquote relate to it necessarily. But what you're doing is you're you're looking into a, a world that has its own logic, its own, you know, kind of coordinates of space and time. If you can figure that out and then write something about it or dig into it, you can do the same thing with a business proposition or you know, a technical challenge that comes up in any kind of any kind of profession. And that, so that's what we're doing. I mean, we're training people to think at a deeper level, rationally, emotionally, et cetera, and giving them the tools to communicate well. I mean, you hear this. You also hear all at the same time that you're hearing, like, what do you do with an English degree? What you're hearing all the time from people who, you know, work in human resources departments of businesses corporations, et cetera, they're constantly saying, I mean, we're, we're getting all these really smart college graduates, but they don't know how to write <laughs> or put together a presentation or a, you know, a team meeting or something. So, I mean, that stuff, skill development in those areas, that's right at the center of what we're doing. And I mean, if you can do that on an assignment for, you know, reading Beowulf, you can also do it for, if you're working in a I don't know, sports media company, and you need to figure out, you know, something that has to do with interpersonal relations and, you know, the psychology of these people who are, you know, trying to, you know, trying to create good teamwork. You know, it's all it's all of a piece. So, that, I mean, that's the other thing about being a professor, I think, back to back to Henry's English professor, back to Henry's question. I think you're trying to model for your students that and hopefully they see that. You know, you are a person, you're in the world. You're not in the text. You know, you're using the text as a way to understand the world. And so we're very, you know, we're very proud of what our graduates, all the different things that our graduates end up end up doing, some of which is directly related to English, you know, if they become teachers or writers, but they, they can go in all sorts of different directions. And now, uh, one of the most rewarding things about being chair is that I get a lot of correspondence from from alumni who are English majors. I was surprised actually how much correspondence I get from, you know, people who are in the in the department. I mean, 50 years ago or two years ago, whatever. You know, they're telling me about their lives and they're telling me how how much difference this this experience and this kind of education had in making them who they are. So I think the question is, what what do you want your students to take? I want, you know, I want them to feel like they they're in in stronger control of their lives. I'd love them to remember what they learned about jazz and the cultural imagination or, you know, some work of Italian-American literature. But that's that's the granular stuff. The bigger stuff is you're helping people become lifelong learners and self teachers and teachers of others, you know, and not necessarily literally teaching is in a classroom experience, but raising their children, being a good sibling, being a good, you know, son or daughter, being a good citizen, you know, being a good coworker. I think I speak for a lot of my colleagues. I mean, that's, that's how we think about the work that we're doing. That's wonderful. I just said, I totally 
echo you on everything that you said. I, I feel like I have to defend my sort of my role as an English major to like, you know, relatives and family gatherings and everything. Like that's you totally hit the nail on the head. I feel like there's definitely, you know, I can even pinpoint classes that I've taken at UVM where that have just really had like a, a pretty sizable impact on me. Postcolonial literature with Helen Scott comes to mind. Literary theory, Sarah Turner also comes to mind. And, you know, also just in the way that not only just sort of my role as like a citizen or like a you know, friend, colleague, as like an adult person, but also the way I sort of interact with any kind of media in general has like really like shifted my perspective. I remember after I took literary theory, I had a sort of a phase where I was listening to a lot of 90s hip hop. And I sort of I gained a real like, like I never really understood it before I took literary theory. I saw like some immediate connections between sort of like carnivalesque carnival theory. Like there's a lot of transgressive actions happening in rap music that I was just totally unaware of before I sort of gain the skills to sort of think about that. You know, that, that's perfect. That's perfect. Right. You know, uh -huh. I mean, it, that kind of that kind of horizontal move from, you know, literary theory to I mean, you know, it's like you grew up on this music. It gave you a lot of pleasure. But now, now you're really now you're really piercing what it's all about. And I can't keep up with hip hop, but I but I but I love it. And the carnivalesque Bakhtinian, you know, way of thinking about that. That's perfect. Yeah. And, you know, that's good. just given me a lot of, like, I, you know, just sort of, like, cerebral pleasure in my life. But I also feel like it's really, like, in turn with connecting me with that music, like, I feel like I've sort of connected to, like, another kind of community that I didn't really have access to before in my life, which is incredible. I guess I just wanted to ask you, sort of, how do you, since you do teach music, sort of as a fine art, not really as sort of, like, a skill or sort of music theory side of music, how do you see the kind of didactic representation, you know, not to like, I can like academia this up too much, but like, how do you see sort of music versus literature getting treated in the sort of sphere that you're in? I mean, I recall that Major Jackson, who is not a UVM professor anymore, but I, I picked up the best, like the poetry collection he edited 2019. And there's a long section in the foreword where he talks about the decision to include a Leonard Cohen poem and sort of how he wanted to really bridge the gap between poetry and sort of lyricism. And, you know, ever since then, I've always been thinking about sort of like multidisciplinary mediums, artistic, fine arts kind of education and how, you know, what, what the disparities are and sort of how you bridge them or bring that up in the classroom. And I would, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. Another great question. I'm not I'm not actually trained in the field of English. My PhD, and this is true of several of us in the department, my training is in American studies, which is a interdisciplinary approach to American kind of history and, and culture, but also it's a innovative way of thinking about what culture actually is. And so what was drilled into me as a graduate student is you need to understand different cultural forms, like a song or a poem or a speech or, or whatnot. But but there are there are common characteristics, you know, of rhetoric, narrative, communicative style, affect, etc. And you're you're learning how to do that to do that kind of analysis. I was gonna say in, in the department we've got several of us who are trained in American studies 
and even among our people who who did PhDs in English, there's a really interesting mix of you know people who do kind of historical. The field is called historicism, you know, kind of kind of thinking about literature as an artifact of history, as opposed to a kind of formal. These things are not exclusive, but there's a way of thinking about literature or thinking about how you should study literature through just formal analysis, what's going on in the poem. And then who wrote the poem? Who was that person hanging with? What kind of artistic community were they a part of, et cetera? And so we all have training in these different in these different fields. And so for me, I mean, you know, to that, you know, question about music and uh, or poet, let's say poetry and song. Right. And this comes up in my jazz and the cultural imagination course quite a bit because I I have the students. We we, we use a a collection of jazz, so-called jazz poems put together by Kevin Young, a friend of mine and majors and, and some others who, you know, is deeply, deeply into the history of jazz and blues and, and hip hop and such. That's informed his poetry. You know, Bob Dylan wins the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's controversial because, you know, some people, even if they love Dylan, you know, they want to preserve that thing called literature for, you know, people who are writing more conventionally and novel form, poetry form, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes sense to me, like why there would be controversy and why people would be, there would be some, you know, kind of turf protection, you know, kind of, kind of business going on. But I don't know. I mean, if you think about where all this comes from <laughs> historically and what purpose it, it has served humanity, you know, go back to, to Homer, go back to the Bible, go back to, I mean, it's like, Essentially, literature was stories, oral stories that somebody got down on paper. Some cases, the oral stories were sung, you know. I mean, singing originates not because somebody was concerned about the purity of their soprano or baritone tone. It was because a message was being conveyed through song. A lesson was being was being taught by a parent to a to a child etc or you know to you know social um, equals but you know something really consequential needed to be needed to be shared and sometimes it was shared in song sometimes it was shared in you know kind of storytelling later on with the invention of literacy and the you know invention of the printing press it gets shared in a different way today the digital social media realm is just a huge historical you know, threshold into other ways of telling stories, conveying meaning. And so I, I, I think of it that way, like set aside the question of form. What's the idea here that's being communicated from one human to another human or set of humans? Or what the feeling is, you know, is it a feeling of sorrow? Is it a feeling of happiness? Some combination of both. You know, the blues is, is one of the great art forms because it's, it manages at the at the same time, sometimes in the same phrase in the middle of the song to convey sorrow and ecstasy at at the same time. But then I do think it, it is useful, and this is partly what you're trained to do and should do as an English professor, to really examine the way that things take different shape in different, you know, kind of formal structures. And one thing I, I really stress in my teaching about about music and literature that a song is if it's a if it's a 
song with lyrics, or even if it's not, it's both a, a script and a performance, right? And performance is its own form of expression and its own deserving of its own analysis, right? So that Leonard Cohen song lyric that goes into Major's collection, really interesting and important to analyze it as poetry or as, you know, kind of how do these words go together? What's the rhyme scheme if there is one? What's the, you know, what's happening in the lineation, et cetera, et cetera. But it's something else when that gets performed as a song. And it may have a different meaning depending on how it's sung. Certainly has a different meaning from one performance to the next based on who the audience is and what they bring to the occasion. Right. So that's how I approach that, you know, that 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 music literature thing. Audience to me is always really important. I mean, there's there's no form of communication that's not that's not both produced and consumed. A vocal utterance, you know, something that's good that gets written. I mean, it could be brilliant. But it's not going to make a difference in the world unless other people hear it or read it and make it their own in a certain way and do something with it. And I think analyzing that dynamic and that process is is a big part of what what we have to do in this field as well. Yeah, well, awesome. Um, well, wrapping up here, I don't have any more questions. Henry, you do you have anything more you want to uh, ask? I'm, I think I'm pretty satisfied. I think this went down okay, really well. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. That was that was great. Awesome. <laughs> uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, John, do you have anything you want to plug here? Any books coming out or anything? Oh, for me? Yeah. Well, I'm still I'm still hoping that people are going to read my most recent book, Flavor and Soul, Italian America at its African American Edge, which which interestingly to me, I mean it it, it it's written out of this American studies background that I have, and it's mostly you know, talking about United States matters. But what's fascinated me is that it's gotten a much bigger reception or more interest, it seems, among people in other countries, particularly Italy. And so I don't have anything to plug right now, but I've been doing some panel kind of discussion work with people from Italy and, and, and other places that are thinking about some of the same things I am, particularly with regard to music. Uh, the intersection of Italian musical history and African, African-American musical history. You know, so hopefully in some future date, you know, and I, I'd have a particular product to, to plug there. I did write uh, one of my favorite band of all time is Steely Dan. Growing up in the 70s and being somebody who was, you know, I was playing in rock bands, but getting interested in jazz. And, you know, they, they just really slayed me with their really cool chord changes and, and they had all these great jazz musicians who would you know who would play parts on their songs they were english majors who wrote stories you know in their songs anyway 2021 is no 2022 will be the 50th anniversary of their first lp and i was commissioned to do a a piece for a uh, rock music journal on anything i wanted to write about regarding steely dan and I wrote this piece, Groove, Voice, and Mystery, Reflections on Steely Dan Cool. And I make an argument about, I got this whole section in my jazz course about the concept of cool and hipness and how it comes out of the jazz world originally. And it comes out of black culture writ large. And it's just an interesting thing about think about how white, how can you be cool as a white person 
who engages with black culture in a way that's not the most obviously problematic cultural appropriation or or just silly, you know, wannabe white Negro kind of stuff. And I think Steely Dan nailed it because they're they're so deeply, deeply embedded within black musical history, but they're not trying to sound black or hip or cool. That's what made them cool. <laughs> they sounded like themselves. And they were the, they were these like really interesting intellectuals. Walter Becker, the bass player, who dropped out of college, but but they were true intellectuals. They didn't necessarily do well in class, but they were really thoughtful people and they weren't afraid to think of pop music as a stage for doing that. So I had a lot of fun writing that essay. And a lot of it has to do with my college experience of being part of a group who would, I mean, my whole college life outside of the classroom at some point seemed to be just huddled over a turntable listening to Steely Dan songs with my with my friends. So that'll come out next year, I think, to to coincide with that 50th anniversary. And I might write a book about Steely Dan. It'll it'll take a few years if I get there, but it's I have more to say. I'm writing a book of poems that are music and food-themed poems. I'm calling the book The Kitchen Sessions, and it's it's been a lot of fun. I just I I I need more time with it. The chair stuff is just kicking my ass, and until I get some things under control, I'm not going to be able to clear out the headspace to to write, I don't know, probably another 20 pieces to go into that. And then I've got a, another jazz thing in the works. It's based on a set of photographs from the 1950s. The town that I grew up in in western Massachusetts, uh, Lenox, Massachusetts, very well known for its classical music tradition, Tanglewood Summer Music Festival is there. But right down the road from Tanglewood was a place called Music Inn. And I knew it in the 70s for, for its rock concerts. I mean, I saw Springsteen, the band, Frank Zappa, I mean, a bunch of, of acts from the, from the 70s. And I, d- I didn't know that, there, that that very space had been the scene 20 years earlier of a really important kind of summer jazz school. And this photographer who was a um, Clemens Kalischer, who was a Holocaust survivor, who found his way to the Berkshires and happened upon this jazz scene. And he didn't really know much about the music and didn't really like it even, but he could tell something really important was going down. And he took just some fascinating, I call them like documentary photographs. I mean, he, what, a lot of jazz photography was in that time and even today, it's like publicity stuff. You know, something you, you would put on an album cover or into a magazine, you know, and you're trying to glamorize or romanticize, you know, the uh, the jazz musician. And this is very different. These are jazz musicians, you know, you know, sort of spending three weeks of the summer living together, teaching, hanging out with their families. I mean, all, you, you get to know them more as people and as mentors and collaborators than as stars. And they were stars. I mean, these are some of the major figures in the in the field. I've written a manuscript for that, and I'm still trying to come up with the money I, I need to, to help a publisher do the kind of job with the book I, I want, because I want the photographs, like 60 or 80 of them, to be, you know, like coffee table, you know, big, great color reproduction. They're all black and white, but there's a way of getting a, you know, high-resolution 
full page bleed kind of production that costs costs a lot of money. And so I'm I'm trying to get grants and stuff and get a publisher behind that book. So that's what I've been up to. Sounds really, really interesting. Uh, I'll make sure to link that 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 article about Steel Dan when it comes out because I know both my roommate and my mother are really they love Steely Dan. So I, I have a lot of people in my circle. Who yeah, are I, I'm in that. I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan as well, so I'll have to look out for that. People either love him or hate him. You know, the people the haters <laughs> are like, it's just you know really boring, you know, boomer. Yeah, <laughs> People always call it dad rock. That's the insult. Dad, that rock. Always get. Yeah. <laughs> dad rock or yacht rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, dad rock. I got to work that into the essay, actually. Dad rock. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but the people are into it. It, it takes over your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm on one of these Facebook Steely Dan chat groups, and I, I can't, I, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how much time I'm spending on that. I don't write stuff in, but I read everybody else's comments. Well, this has been great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap up the episode of this somehow. Um, maybe yeah. we already did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it was it was great to talk with you. Learned learned a lot of different stuff. Really looking forward to that Steely Dan article. And, All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs>